In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You are advised that any view expressed by the host or their guest are not necessarily the views of the owners or management of Toginet Radio, Togi Entertainment, or the Owners Group, Inc. us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the And welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper to the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsink. And as usual, I'm waiting for my counterpart. Okay, Richard, you there? I've, I've, I've come through on Skype. There's something wrong with the phones. It's paranormal. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, what is, yeah, is yeah. that volcano screwed up your phone lines? Is that what you're trying to tell me? That's kind of a lame excuse, <laughs> you know that? Yeah, listen, listen, my friend. It's not only screwed up the phone lines, it's screwed up me because I've got <laughs> I've got a very bad chest and, and um, my voice isn't quite what it normally is, I'm afraid. Uh, but I'm here and that's all that matters. I've made it in the end. All right, excellent. So so what's new with you, Richard? Uh, what have you been up to over this past few days or this past week? Uh, Gosh, I did. Well, I had a fantastic uh, event on um, Saturday night, uh, uh, an all night. I started at seven o'clock uh, at night and got home at half past five in the morning. Um, a place that we did on Most Haunted about five years ago called the Glad- Gladstone Pottery Museum. Um, it really was a most amazing place. And we got some, well, I tell you what, uh, we did quite a few seances during the night. But really? the amazing. The amazing thing is that, yeah, we did the old table tilting and all the things that we, you know, that we, we tend to do over here. Uh, it's very haunted, but the fascinating thing is that um, it's the place that I, I learned a lot about my silica tape theory, you know, right. silica buildings, because um, it's a pottery museum. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, of course, for, for 300 years, they made ceramics. Pottery, pots, and, and out of clay. And, of course, it's all made of silica. Um, and so there are so many ghosts in this place, of alleged ghosts. But I think the vast majority of what people actually um, get there are residual uh, re- you know, recordings in the fabric of the building uh, because the amount of silica that's there. Now, listen, listen to this, my friend, because you know how I've, I've often talked about uh, the number of toilet ghosts that there are. Right. Yeah, in fact, I'm going to write a book, I'm telling you now, called Toilet Ghosts. And one of the most haunted areas of this of this um, factory, uh, museum, is, is an area that has got a display of toilets in it. Uh, Interesting. Right, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right back to sort of the early um, 1800s. Uh, a guy, I don't think, this is a fantastic story. A guy called Thomas Crapper, who invented, more or less invented the toilet, right. Yeah, and, and the people see more ghosts in this area of the museum than anywhere else um, in, in the whole building. And I think it's because, the same as I believe that toilets are haunted, is because you're surrounded with silica. Because the bath's made of silica, the toilet's made of silica, the wash basin's made of silica. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, and, and listen, to take it one stage farther, I was talking to a guy today who uh, is an ambulance man and also works part-time in an undertaker's, and he tells me that 70% of the people that he goes to fetch out to take back to the undertaker's die in the toilet. Hmm. Interesting. That's Coincidence? That's I think not. Well, that's what he told me today. So anyways, uh, you want to hold that thought, and we'll talk about that a little later on the show, because do you believe in reincarnation, Richard? Um, listen, I, I, I believe in it, um, but not in the same way as, as the Hindus do. But uh, I can't wait. I'm, I'm, I'm really waiting for this. This is going to be great. So what do you think, uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, reincarnation of uh, Charles Lindbergh? We have a guy that believes so. Why don't we bring him uh, on here? Listen, my friend, you know what an open mind I've got. Um, I'm, I'm ready and willing to, to, to listen and to talk and uh, learn more, basically. Without any further ado, let me introduce Richard Salva. Richard, how are you? I'm doing really well, Ron. How are you? Long time no see. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, uh, your book came out a, a couple of years ago. I think, and uh, it's got an interesting theory, because in your book, you describe uh, how, well, actually, you, you uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You document that uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, uh, excuse me, Lindbergh was reincarnated Abraham Lincoln, which is an interesting theory. Yes, it might not be one that most people would come to on their own. It's actually a theory that isn't mine, but was one uh, that was stated by a great master of yoga, whose name was uh, Paramahansa Yogananda. And he was the author of the classic autobiography, The Yogi, that has inspired millions throughout the world, including the Beatles. In fact, uh, you could see Yogananda's photograph on the cover of the Sgt. Pepper album. And uh, somewhere about 60 years ago or so, Yogananda said that uh, Abraham Lincoln, in a past life, had been an advanced Himalayan yogi and that he was reborn as Charles Lindbergh, the great aviator. And uh, so about a dozen years ago or so, uh, this, uh, my memory of this statement of his came to mind, and I wondered, here were two men whose lives had been so deeply chronicled. I wondered if I were to go in-depth into their lives, you know, to study the right, their own writings, study the writings of people who knew them, uh, just go into their lives if I would be able to find connections between them. And uh, also, since uh, I myself am a yogi, as somebody who's been practicing the teachings of Himalayan yogis for, uh, well, now it's been over 30 years, uh, I should be able also to spot connections between both men and the ancient spiritual science of yoga. So I dove into the history books and the biographies and uh, went to libraries and looked at microfiche and uh, old newspapers and magazines, and I just... Uh, ended up accumulating this amazing quantity of data and 
uh, evidence that uh, what Yogananda had said was true. When I started this process, Ron, I wasn't sure what I would find. I thought I might find a few interesting connections. But I ended up uncovering nearly 500 fascinating similarities between Abraham Lincoln and Charles Lindbergh and unusual similarities, not the sort of things we all have in common. And uh, more than 200 connections between Abraham Lincoln and the ancient spiritual science of yoga, and more than 100 connections between Charles Lindbergh and the path of yoga. And it was really quite fascinating that everything that can define an individual, whether it's uh, on a physical level, mental, emotional, social, and even spiritual, there were connections between Abraham Lincoln and Charles Lindbergh. It's quite amazing. And, and you put this in a book called Soul Journey from Lincoln to Lindbergh? Yes, that was the uh, first edition, which is still available online at my website, which is lincolnreincarnation.com. But it also came out last year in a new edition, which is available uh, in the bookstores and Borders and Barnes and & Noble and so on. And the title of that book is The Reincarnation of Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Now, uh, it's an interesting book. I mean, first of all, you you probably know that I'm not a big reincarnation person. Hmm. However, I I still, I find the the book fascinating in in the... uh, the tracing that you run from Lincoln to Lindbergh, I think that, that's extremely interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, like I said, it, it goes through so many aspects of their lives that uh, basically I was able to give a sort of a mini-biography of both men. Uh, I started with uh, Charles Lindbergh and went backwards because uh, when we're looking at reincarnation, we're talking about our past lives. And it's helpful for us, looking at it from that perspective in the book, to be able to read about Charles Lindbergh and to see how his past life as Abraham Lincoln affected him as Lindbergh. And then we can look at our own lives and, you know, just sort of see those own connections in our own lives. And I've received emails and letters from people who've read the book, and they've said that reading it helps them to, to see how past lives are affecting their life right now, because... They are. We just aren't that aware of it. There are so many different connections that we have with our past lives that show up uh, pretty much on a daily basis. And either they flip through the back of our mind like, oh, that's interesting, or that was like a deja vu experience, or, you know, gee, I felt like I've been here before, or you know that person before, or different things like that. But it doesn't really kind of stick in our minds. But when you have just hundreds of connections through the, these two famous lives, which are fascinating in and of themselves, then we can apply them also to our own lives. Right. Richard, you got anything to say? You're awful quiet there, my friend. Yes. Hi, Richard. Um, yes, how apologies are you? for my voice. I, I've, uh, I've got a bad chest at the moment. Um, did you actually say 500,000 similarities between the two men? No, I said uh, five, nearly 500 connections between them. 500? Uh, and actually, I found many more than that, but uh, I put the ones that I thought were the most interesting, the ones that you know, captured. If there were two that were similar, I picked one that was I thought was a better representation yeah. of that particular way of, of seeing yeah. connections between two lifetimes. Well, I mean, and tell me something. I mean, um, did, did Charles Lindbergh know anything about um, his past life as Lincoln? Well, you know, there are a number of things in his life that uh, make you wonder about that. 
Um, he announced his engagement to Anne Morrow on Lincoln's birthday. Um, he, he, when he came to, uh, he was doing a national air tour of America. After he had flown the Atlantic, everybody wanted to see him in the United States, so he went from state to state, either stopping at different cities or flying over and dropping, you know, reeds and things like that, uh, or bags of airmail, actually, because he was yep. promoting the airmail. But uh, as he went from city to city, he also stopped in Abraham Lincoln's hometown of Springfield, Illinois. And when he was there, people asked him what it was like to be there, and he said it, was, it felt like he was coming home. So it oh, makes you wonder, it makes you wonder, you know, whether he knew, but he doesn't say anything directly about it. You know, if really? he had, you know, what would be the point? I mean, you know, uh, A, it's a, it's a tough act to follow, to be a reincarnation <laughs> of someone like Lincoln, who was such a great, you know, I mean, it was such a great lifetime, uh, such yeah. an amazing lifetime, a historic one, and also a very, just almost like a... a uh, one out of a fable or something, or a mythical lifetime. Um, mm -hmm. And then the second thing is Charles Lindbergh, he already had all the notoriety he could use, so why put out that he was Abraham Lincoln in the past if he didn't know about it? Now, he, he wrote in one of his books, in fact, his last book, which was called Autobiography of Values, he, he discussed the idea of reincarnation, and he thought that it might very well be true because I think he, he wrote in there that he felt this sense of connection, you know, with the future, a sense of connection with the past. He, he wondered about life being able to uh, be sustained uh, past physical death. And uh, he, but he put it in scientific terms because he was, you know, he had a mechanical mind, which is what helped him to be able to, you know, design an airplane to fly the Atlantic you know, as well as it did when uh, others hadn't been able to do it as well before. And uh, so he saw these things in mechanical terms, and he tried to think that maybe reincarnation was passed on in families through the gene pool, through DNA. He didn't know. He was just sort of wondering about it. But he gave a beautiful illustration. Toward the end of his life, he had a home in Maui, Hawaii. And uh, he saw there these mountain pools which would... Uh, form, there would be a little rivulet or stream, and it would go down and it would form in a pool, and then it would go uh, beyond the lip of that pool and down into, and then it would fall into another pool. And he thought reincarnation was like that. And it's a very good analogy for reincarnation. Yeah. It's the same spirit, the same water, if you will, uh, going yes. down that hillside, and then it would accumulate for a period of time in a pool, and then it would go over the lip and <laughs> down it'd go into the next lifetime. I think it's a marvelous illustration. Interesting. Now, yeah, let me ask you, ask you this. Uh, Lincoln, uh, he was uh, precognizant of a lot of things. Did he have any dreams, especially in his dreams, did he have any dreams of anything about Lindbergh that we know about? Well, you know, uh, no. But he was really focused on that particular lifetime. If you look at his lifetime, Abraham Lincoln's lifetime, from a spiritual perspective, you get a real sense that it was a, uh, he had a life goal, a life purpose a life purpose, perhaps, of holding the country together during the Civil War, which, to a large degree, he did by just the force of his will, uh, just by his, his, his energy, his dynamic attunement and uh, commitment to that. Uh, also, he uh, freed the slaves, signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and uh, it's really you really get a sense when you re-look at his life from a spiritual perspective that, that he just, just had these, these life goals that he had to focus on, 
And so there wouldn't really be a need, uh, what to speak of time, to focus on anything else. For somebody in that time and place that he grew up, I mean, he grew up, he was born in a log cabin, yet he ended up in the White House. And uh, to make that great leap in that lifetime took a lot of energy and effort and mental focus and everything that it would take for anybody to excel at anything, what to speak of and as a lawyer and in politics, which he ended up doing. And uh, he was able to succeed in freeing the slaves when many abolitionists had been committed their lives to it but weren't quite able to make it happen. Um, but he, he kind of took a slower route than they did, but he was very successful. But uh, uh, he, uh, it really seems clear that from birth, even, um, he was just really aware that he had this, this dharma, if you will, this, this life duty. In fact, he had visions when he was a young child of what his life would be, which you, you two referred to, uh, that he would rise to a high office and that it would, he would have a bloody fall or ending at the end of it, but that he would do some great thing in his life. And so... Even as a young child, this, this, this goal was sort of superimposed on his consciousness, on his psyche. And so for him to be tuning into what he might be doing down the road, uh, it's just not that sort of lifetime. You really have to be focused on the here and now to make such a great uh, thing happen as he did. Richard, does it does it work? Can it work both ways? In other words, what Ron's saying, uh, I mean, I could understand... Uh, when I asked you uh, if if Lindbergh uh, knew that he was, you know, the reincarnation of someone that was from an earlier life, can it can it work in the other direction where someone from an early life will know that they're going to be the reincarnation of someone later? Sorry, that's not right. You know, pass into another body later. In yeah. other words, looking into the future. Yes, uh, there have been a number of um, studies done on this. I think a man named Chet Snow, uh, he's a doctor of some sort, wrote a book on, I think it was like Visions of the Future, Dreams of the Future, yeah. where people had dreams or other uh, visions of some sort of who and what they would be in the future. I don't know if they were able to you know, really uh, find out how, how true they were, but it really sort of showed... It was interesting, I think, you know, I, I, again, I didn't read in depth into this book, but I had the impression that they described a similar kind of future. And again, I can't give you many details about it, but um, the, uh, the, my perspective on reincarnation comes from, you were talking about the Hindu perspective. Mine is sort of a Hindu perspective, but it comes from the deeper teachings of yoga, as taught by Yogananda. And uh, one of those deeper teachings is that uh, time itself is all happening at the same time. And time if we were able to, you know, the only way we could, but when we're in it, then we see it from a chronological order. But if we were able to go beyond it, uh, rise above it, so to speak, for instance, if you were able to climb to the top of a mountain, you could see everything leading up to that peak. Uh, but from down below, you're really kind of focused on the path ahead of you and this rock in front of you and this tree that you're trying to climb over and things like that. Um, so you're really kind of in the moment. You know what you, where you've been. You can maybe look ahead a little bit and see where you've gone. But once you've reached that mountain peak, then you can see it all. And it's said that those who achieve a deep state of self-realization, which is a spiritual uh, enlightenment, are able to see all their lifetimes. You know, of course, they're at the end of their lifetime cycle, so they can look back and see it all. But uh, there are moments when people are, are able to, to 
tie in with their future lives. In fact, while working on the book, The Reincarnation of Abraham Lincoln, um, there were times when I felt this sense of responsibility for my past life uh, as far as trying to do the best I can in this life with the challenges I have so that in the future I'll sort of have a leg up if I face those challenges again. And then, but I also had this sense of connection, a very subtle one, with who I'll be down the road. Because the path of reincarnation is that eventually we work our way upwards. Uh, we start at the beginning of the process, perhaps acting like animals, and at the end of the process, we're acting more like angels. And uh, at some point, we're, we're going to be manifesting the highest octave of, of Ron, of Richard. And when we're able to do that, um, you know, there's, there's a spiritual wisdom and a greater expanded sense of consciousness that goes beyond our lifetime. And so there have been moments when I felt a connection with uh, myself, Richard Salva, who I'll be, you know, way, way down the road. <laughs> and uh, it's, just, it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice feeling to know that you've got something to look forward to. Yeah, we, so, so I, can accept, I can accept very much, you know, as we call it, reincarnation, past life, past life regression, past lives. Um, but I, I, I personally, and I'd be interested in what, what Ron thinks as well, and, and perhaps what you think, Richard, you know, I cannot see us, uh, yes, I can understand us perhaps um, ooh, dreaming of the future, but actually being able to pinpoint, you know, I am going to be someone that I don't believe has actually happened yet. Yes, it's, it's something that uh, it, it takes an expanded consciousness to be able to step back from our own lifetime that to that degree. Uh, because when we're looking from the, the past, we're looking from a perspective of this lifetime. We're looking yeah. for the future, we have to think in terms of, of our potentialities. And uh, that means we have to be able to step back from this physical body. We have to step back from the, our own personality to a large degree because... We have a, a great wealth, uh, a great background, a, a, a great ground of, of many different potentialities within ourselves, and we've chosen to specialize in a few of them in this one lifetime because one lifetime in and of itself is actually quite short. But yeah. um, when we, to be able to do that, we, again, we have to be able to step beyond where we are now, and to be able to do that, it helps. Uh, the one path that really helps us to do that is to learn to meditate because. In meditation, we learn that we are not a physical body, that we are a spirit inhabiting a body for a period of time, this body that, according to scientists, they tell us that every seven years all the molecules in body right. change. So it's not exactly the same. It's not the same as you were when you were born or when you were 20 years old or 40 years old or whatever as we grow. It changes, but the, the essence of what we are doesn't change. Uh, our personalities can shift as we grow older. Hopefully, we mature. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but uh, the essence of who and what we are stays the same. And that's what we tune into when we go into a deep state of meditation. Then you can step beyond your body. In fact, um, the, the power of being able to see one's past and uh, potentially one's future lives is described in a book called uh, The Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, who was a great sage of ancient India. And he said uh, he gave various spiritual powers that great uh, souls, you know, great saints will manifest. And he said one of those is the ability to see your past lives and future lives. And he oh. said that the, the, the way to that ability 
is the way to, to, to manifest that ability is by perfecting the quality of non-acceptance uh, of this body, of this personality, as the, the final word on who and what you are. You know, once you, when you really, in your mind, you don't accept that this, this is it, you know, then you're able to see so much more. Gosh. When we're not focused on a little tiny corner of painting, then we can see the entire painting. But as long as we're focused on that one little bit, like with a microscope, then we're not able to see it all. So, in your book, um, can you give us, like, what three of the most positive things that are pieces of evidence that will, will you know, uh, prove the point that Link, uh, Lindbergh was Lincoln? Yes, I, when I went through uh, a little while after writing the book, uh, I've been asked that before in radio interviews, and uh, I thought, well, maybe let me go through and see what were some of the most interesting ones. And uh, mm -hmm. I'll just give you uh, go down the list a little bit if you want. There's some very yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, these are very specific and unusual connections. You can imagine yourself now. Do I have that sort of connection with with you know my neighbor? You know right. where I live. Uh, both men were victims of crimes of the century. This is a very elite group, <laughs> if you want to use that word. I mean, nobody would want to be in that group. But, um, you know, uh, Lincoln was, uh, Lincoln assassination, of course. And then Charles Lindbergh, his son was kidnapped, the great uh, Lindbergh kidnapping. Both were uh, called crimes of the century. And uh, so both were, were victims of those crimes. Uh, both men were the focuses of huge processions in Manhattan and elsewhere in America. Uh, Lincoln gave a great gift to America but was never rewarded. And Charles Lindbergh was given the greatest reward in the history of the United States. Uh, in fact, people went crazy over Lindbergh. It's interesting when you look at uh, history to see that uh, there were, I think, about 20 different people who flew the Atlantic before Lindbergh did. Now, they did it in small groups. They did it, like, from Newfoundland to Iceland or to... Uh, to uh, Ireland or things like that, and they did it in uh, those uh, um, uh, Zeppelins and things like that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't quite the same thing as what he did when he did it. Took a single-engine airplane, flew from New York to Paris, and pretty much arrived on time, as our, our modern airliners usually do. Uh, so it was really quite an eye-opening thing. But people just went crazy emotionally over Lindbergh. Uh, just to give you one example. He was in a Manhattan parade after his flight, and uh, not only the, the Broadway, but the side streets off Broadway were filled with people uh, cheering and throwing their hats in the air and uh, throwing graffiti. And then there were people on the streets that were parallel to Broadway, several streets down on the side streets. And those people couldn't see Lindbergh going by, but they could hear the acclaim when his car went by. And some of those people were weeping. Now, this doesn't make much sense when you think of what he did. I mean, uh, again, the, the Atlantic had been flown before, but there was something about him that drew this out of people, and it, uh, it doesn't make that much sense when you think of what he did, but it makes perfect sense if you think he was Abraham Lincoln reincarnated, because Lincoln died right at the end of his work, just when people were starting to appreciate him. And when he was killed, suddenly everybody realized it as it were, been entertaining an angel unaware. And uh, so people just started to, and as, as Carl Sandburg said about Lincoln, you can only measure the height of a tree when it has fallen. And that was, was the case for Lincoln, and suddenly everybody was just wishing they could 
expressed their appreciation to him, but he had been stolen away from them. But according to uh, Yogananda, some uh, 55 years later... Richard, I hate to interrupt you, but oh, we have okay. to take a break right now. Oh, yeah. Okay, uh, you are listening it. to Ghost Chronicles International on Tojinet and Paranex. And our special guest is Richard Salva. And we'll be right back after the following messages. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly kooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Parrax family. Being frugal doesn't mean being cheap, and the Frugalitarian is here to show you how. Jody Olson is the Frugalitarian on Togedown, 3 p.m. Central, Wednesdays. This is the art of great living. It's just a matter of time before people start asking you to tell them your secrets to better style, bargains on food, home decor, and clothing. Your wants don't have to change, just how you acquire what you want. On the Frugalitarian, it's an uncommon mix of style, fashion savvy, and earth friendly, showing you great taste, great style, and great ideas for finding everything you want for nearly nothing. I'm speaking from experience. I live on a beautiful farm where I take care of sheep and do a few light farm chores for extremely low rent. For more clever ideas on how to waste not and totally want not, go to thefrugalitarian.com. Join us every week for more information on how you can live better for less with Jody Olson. It's The Frugalitarian, Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. International with Richard Felix and Ron Cohen on Pararex, Tojinet, Ghost Channel and Beyond. Uh, a very special guest is Mr. Richard Salva, who has written the book Soul Journey, and I forget the name of the, the re, redo of that, Richard. Uh, the reincarnation of that book is The Reincarnation of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and your website is? It's uh, LincolnReincarnation.com. Okay, now uh, I forgot where we left off. I'm sorry about that. Um, do you remember your train of thought? Or did I totally yes, mess it yes. up? Yes, so we're, we're going through a short list of some of the most interesting oh, yes, and unusual connections between Lincoln and Lindbergh. I'll just mention a few more. Uh, both men lost his son while centered in the public eye. Uh, Charles Lindbergh, of course, lost his son when he was kidnapped. Most historians agree that... Uh, the, the, uh, there was an accident during the kidnapping process where the, the boy was killed, unfortunately. And uh, for Abraham Lincoln, when he was uh, in the middle of the Civil War, he lost his favorite son, Willie, to typhoid. Uh, basically, Washington, D.C. was nothing much more than a swamp in those days, and a lot of people were dying from illnesses of that type. And uh, that was a hard thing for both men. Uh, both, here's an interesting one. Both the very specific. Both committed political suicide at the age of 39 by accusing the president in office in political speeches of trying to plunge the country into war. So that was a very interesting one. Oh. Uh, both men were prayed for by millions of people. Uh, both were gifted with honorary doctors of law. Both men were accompanied at time by military honor guards. Both came to represent America. 
Uh, both wanted to serve as soldiers during wartime, but circumstances prevented their doing so. Um, as I said, they, these are some of the more unusual ones, but they, they cover really every aspect of human life and uh, experience. What about, Richard, the, um, any anything to do with um, them looking in, in any way similar, having any any similar uh, idiosyncrasies or, or, or characteristics or anything like that? Uh, you mean physical characteristics? Yeah. Yes. Yes, Richard. Actually, it's interesting. I'm looking right now at uh, photos of both men, uh, and they have this tendency to look at the world as if from a distance. If you look at right. photos of Abraham Lincoln and Charles Lindbergh, especially the young pictures of Lindbergh, but even when he was older, there's this, there's this sense that there's still that Himalayan yogi in there looking out from the cave and just sort of contemplating humanity and its various manifestations. And, um, and uh, they both had this sort of a heavy brow and uh, their deep-set eyes, and their eyes were the same color, about a grayish blue or so. Uh, they both pushed out their upper, lower lip as if in deep thought. They were oh, both wow. about the same height and weight. Uh, Lindbergh was about an inch shorter. Abraham Lincoln, of course, was very tall and well-known for that, but they were both very thin for most of their lives. Uh, and uh, they both had large hands and feet. Uh, they were both, even though they were thin, they were both very strong physically. And uh, they're, they're, uh, they both tended to hunch their back uh, and a little bit, you know. And uh, so there, these physical characteristics, they tend to carry on from lifetime to lifetime because often they, they originate in a, from a state of consciousness. Uh, like we said, you know, the lower lip, it's, uh, somebody who thinks deeply might push their lower lip out, and uh, this was the case for both men. Right. What about any anything, <clears throat> excuse me, so not spiritual exactly, but, but more sort of... Um, um, I, a little bit like, so, you know, oh, he, he's, he's very good at playing the piano, but yes, so was his great-grandfather. Did that, <laughs> anything like that? Uh, well, they've, um, it's interesting that uh, Charles Lindbergh chose several, um, his, his, his uh, career that he chose for his lifetime included several item, things that uh, Abraham Lincoln was interested in. Uh, for really? instance, most people don't know that Abraham Lincoln was a natural mechanic, he had a mechanical mind. Uh, when he was a lawyer in Illinois, uh, he uh, would take some of the men in, and women, in, I think it was just men in those days, in the jury, and bring them up to look at the underside of a reaper or something like that, uh, this mechanical device, and he would demonstrate to them exactly how it worked, and they would win the law case that way. Uh, when he was president, he was on a train with his son, and uh, his son asked him, well, how does a locomotive work? And the engineer was there smiling, thinking, well, I'll have to correct this and uh, fix it when he tries to explain it. And then he listened with greater and greater astonishment as Abraham Lincoln, who never really studied locomotives, was able to describe very precisely how a locomotive engine worked and, you know, the process of uh, uh, propulsion and so on. And uh, so he was a natural mechanic, and so this was a... Uh, something that he was interested in but had no time as Abraham Lincoln with his very full life and his uh, life duty, so to speak, to put any time and energy into. So this is something we can keep in mind for ourselves. If there's something that we're very much interested in and we don't have time in this life to be able to pursue it, we shouldn't worry about it because there's really all the time in the world. Um, yeah. The other thing that I hadn't mentioned yet was the fact that uh, Abraham Lincoln 
was always interested in the cutting edge of transportation. For instance, he when um, when steamships were the cutting edge of transportation, he would take law their side in a law case to argue for their side. But when uh, locomotives came became and became the uh, cutting edge. Then he would actually argue locomotive interests against steamship interests in, in a, the same law case. And when he was president, even in the middle of the Civil War, when you know from one month to the next they didn't know if there was going to be a country, he signed the bill for the Transcontinental Railroad to make sure that you know this this great thing that would link the East and West Coast would go forward. And then it's very interesting that as Charles Lindbergh, he chose a career, he ended up linking America with Europe in a very direct way. Uh, and ended up flying uh, all these uh, routes so that uh, he could test them to see what the air conditions were like. And many of the routes that people fly in and nowadays to fly around the world, he uh, pioneered them, often with his wife. And uh, then not only that, but he helped to get uh, the rocket tree program and NASA going. He helped uh, Goddard to find funding for his rocket experiments, uh, he went to speak to the Apollo astronauts when they were about to fly to the moon and so on. So he was, he was very keen on the cutting edge of transportation both men were. And so you see this continuity of consciousness uh, from one lifetime to the next. So in other words, he got to do what he, what he couldn't do as president 70 years later. Yes, and exactly. And I've often mentioned that to wow. me when I was studying, researching this, it was like Charles Lindbergh was Lincoln on vacation. He was doing... <laughs> doing all the things that Lincoln wanted to do. At the end of his life, Lincoln talked about wanting to go to California and Europe, and, and these are the places that Lindbergh got to go. He had, Lindbergh had a free passport around the world anywhere he wanted to go. Um, through most of his life, if he showed up in those places, they would just hold a parade for him. You know, and he, he was just like uh, he got the reception that Lincoln might have gotten, this great man, if he had lived to, to experience it. Absolutely unbelievable. No question point. Go on, Ron. You you have a go now. Well, the, the thing I was interested in, of course, Lindbergh made that that transatlantic uh, flight, and he spent a lot of time in in the cockpit. Uh, did he have any uh, experiences w while traveling? Oh yes, and in fact, uh, he had he had some amazing, very metaphysical experiences while he was flying the Atlantic. This is something that we don't learn when we're in elementary school and we hear about Lindbergh's flight across the Atlantic, but he, he mentioned these experiences in his Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Spirit of St. Louis, and he also mentioned them several times in his last book, his Autobiography of Values, so you could see how they really played a big part in his mind. And to give you, I'll just give you in a nutshell what he experienced when he was flying the Atlantic. Um, just to, to, to backtrack just a, a, a moment, uh, before he made the flight across the Atlantic, uh, he was very nervous that night, so he had a hard time falling asleep. And when he finally did fall asleep, somebody in his entourage knocked on the door and just sort of woke him up and, and uh, interrupted his sleep process. So he really basically had no sleep the night before the flight. And then the flight itself lasted for 33 and a half hours. So he went several nights without sleep, and the second night was while he was trying to fly the Atlantic. This, this hair-raising, very dangerous uh, thing that he was trying to do. And uh, so he was halfway across the Atlantic, and it was uh, the early morning hours. 
And for anybody who's tried to stay up all night, and I've done this, uh, as a yogi, sometimes you do overnight meditations, you try to do that. And uh, this is what Lindbergh was trying to do. He was trying to stay awake, and uh, he found that uh, he was kept wanting to fall asleep, of course. There's a certain time in the early morning hours that it's very hard to keep your eyes open. And this is what he was experiencing. And so his conscious mind was battling with his subconscious. His, con- his subconscious was saying, oh, you have to sleep. Nobody was made to go for days without sleeping. You have to go to sleep right now. And his conscious mind would just be like a slap in the face and say, no, if I sleep, I'll, I'll uh, fall into the Atlantic and nobody will ever hear from me again. So this battle went on between his conscious and superconscious. And uh, Yogananda said that the super, I mean, the, the subconscious and the conscious mind, Yogananda said that the superconscious, which is the higher consciousness, can be found at the horizon line between the conscious and the subconscious. And this tension between the two sort of catapulted him into a superconscious state. And suddenly he said, he wrote in his book that a third part of his mind came in to play and said, you can rest and everything will be all right, you won't die and everything will be fine. And being too tired to argue with it, he just went with it. And suddenly he found that his body was sort of like an automatic pilot. It flew the plane without his conscious awareness of it. But he was looking at the inside of his cockpit, which is expanded into the astral blueprint of that cockpit, which is much larger than the physical manifestation. And in, he was able to see the whole thing as if he said his, his head was one big eye. He could see out the back of his head. He could see everything. He was having an experience that yogis call spherical vision, which is a very rare experience even for yogis in meditation. And uh, while he was having this experience, he said that three spirits came to him, and they manifest suddenly, from one moment to the next, they appeared in the back of the cockpit. And they came forward one at a time to speak with Lindbergh, and he said ever afterward, he always wanted to remember what they said, and he never could remember. But at the time, it just seemed like what they were saying was so important to him. And uh, we can wonder if these were spirits of yogis that he had known in his Himalayan lifetime as a yogi, that it comes at this very important moment in his life to give him support and uh, their good wishes. But he said he, he felt that he recognized them, but that he, he did not know them And in this lifetime. And he wondered if he had known them in a past life. And he wrote this in his Spirit of St. Louis, which was published in the mid-50s. So that was a pretty far out statement in and of itself. And so for a period of time, he just experienced this beautiful experience. And then the spirits disappeared. And he said suddenly he found himself pushing out of his physical body and he was astral projecting. He said he pushed forward through the nose of his aircraft and he was washing, mixing with the wash of his propeller. And then he was flying outside of the Spirit of St. Louis in his astral body. And at this point, uh, Lucky Lindy was, uh, I like to say, he was flying two airplanes at once, the Spirit of St. Louis and the astral plane. And uh, so he was experienced this really amazing experience and then his karma drew him back into his body, and so he sort of woke up to find when he hit landfall in Ireland that he was almost exactly on course, within a mile of being on course. Now, this is really amazing, too, because his, at times during his flight, his compass didn't work, and uh, he had to sort of, he was flying through fog or he was flying through clouds, and he wasn't sure where he was going, and he would go around in circles sometimes to see where he was, and uh, he was just, you know, some of it was dead reckoning, and uh, Yet he was within a mile of being off course, which is really just the odds against it are just uh, astronomical.
Wow. Very quickly, there's, there's um, another point here because uh, in my book that I wrote not that long ago called What is a Ghost, funnily enough, there's a, there's a chapter in it about the third man syndrome. I'm sorry, sorry, say that again, I didn't hear you. Yeah, there's there's a a phenomenon known known as the third man syndrome, where uh, pilots, uh, Ernest Shackleton, who was climbing, I don't know what he was climbing, one of the mountains, and Charles Lindbergh also experienced this when he was, stated he was, when he was so tired that he sort of knew that he could go to sleep because apparently he felt that someone else came in which is very similar to what you're saying, and took over the controls of his plane uh, yeah. and guided him, funnily enough, on course. Could yeah. that have been Lincoln? Yeah, I think, um, well, since he was Lincoln, I don't think it was the past life coming in to, to guide the plane. I think I, I know what you're talking about, where uh, some other spirits might come into a physical body. To, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully it's a, it's a positive, uh, they have good intentions when they do that. Uh, but I think for Lindbergh, I think it was more that his super consciousness, which could do all these things at once and, you know, and a hundred other things at, at the same time and not be bothered by it, uh, had taken over. You know, he had gone Amazing. into a super conscious state. The super consciousness is like the soul directly connecting with, with this lifetime. And our souls are so much greater than our physical body, even our mind. You know, the scientists say that use 10% of our brain, but... You know, the soul can use it all. And uh, for an enlightened person, one of their experiences is that they, uh, their, their, their brain becomes full, filled with light. And, uh, you know, they can use any part of their brain, and, and they can do amazing things. And so I think this is one of those things where he wasn't particularly aware of it as Charles Lindbergh, but his soul was, was guiding the airplane. I think that was more of what it was. The, the other interesting thing about this is that we have two really, really famous persons that, uh, you know, basically you're saying are the same soul. But, you know, we, we hear about reincarnation so much that people who are in this world now uh, are reincarnated to someone famous in the past. But this is kind of a unique situation where we, yes, yes. you're a famous person in both lives. Yes, and I think there's a good reason for that, because as I mentioned before, Abraham Lincoln died at the end of his work. Uh, he died within a week of the signing of the Treaty of, at Appomattox by Robert E. Lee. Uh, there were still soldiers out in the field, there were still armies fighting, but the, to all intents and purposes, the Civil War was basically over. And uh, so he had really accomplished his, 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 his dharma, his duty in that lifetime, and then he was taken away right away before... Uh, if you believe it, there's a corollary to reincarnation, which is the law of karma. And the law of karma is such that whatever you put out is returned to you in equal measure. And in this lifetime as Abraham Lincoln, he did so many good things for people, uh, so many wonderful things that, uh, as I like to put it, when he went into the astral world, his spirit had a huge payment due stamped on his forehead that he just needed to come back. and uh, And so... Fame and fortune were his at a very early age. I think he was like 25 years old when he flew the Atlantic. And for the rest of his life, he didn't have to worry about, you know, earning money. I mean, he was a high-energy person anyway. He was dynamic enough to to not have to worry about that anyway. But, uh, uh, I mean, so many things were just given to him afterwards. But it was necessary for that to happen. And so he was famous as Abraham Lincoln because he did something worth being famous for. He also did something as Lindbergh, but... uh, the same came much more easily to 
mm-hmm. but a lot of people will say they were famous in a past life. And uh, in fact, Yogananda had an interesting experience where three of his students came to him, and he brought them all together in a room. They, each one had been told by a psychic that they were Mary, Queen of Scots, in a past life. And so he brought them together, and he said, Would the, Will the real Mary, Queen of Scots, please stand up? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, sometimes we might feel that we were a famous person, but we have to ask ourselves, you know, could I have done what you know, Abraham Lincoln had done in that lifetime? Do I ha- can I manifest a similar level of energy? When you look at Charles Lindbergh, you could say, okay, yeah, I could see it. There's a possibility there. I mean, he was just an amazing individual in so many ways, and he had so many similar characteristics uh, on every level. You know, you could see that possibility, but for... Your average person to say, oh, I think I was Napoleon in a past life. You know, Napoleon led hundreds of thousands of men in armies in battle. And he, when he was uh, sent into exile, he came back all alone and stood before the gates and said, I'm your emperor. You know, they could have struck him down where he stood, but just by the power of his personal magnetism, they opened the gates and said, welcome back, you know, and in spite of what that would mean for the whole country. So, uh, you know, when we're... Thinking about if we could have been a famous person in the past, we have to say, well, could I manifest that right now, what they did? And if we say that that's way beyond us, then we'll say, well, maybe I feel a connection with them because I lived in that time and I identified with them. You know, just as we tend to identify sometimes with famous people that we know even right now, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, do, or do, is there certain parts of their life that I feel a real connection with, which is also might be true. This, this is where I have a problem with, um, perhaps Ron feels the same as me, that often, so often with people that, that believe they, you know, had a past life, they always seem to be, as you just said, Napoleon, the Duke of Wellington, Abraham Lincoln, Queen right. Bodicea, Mary Queen of Scots. You know, what about all those ordinary people that were out there? Yes, yes, exactly. Well, but the interesting thing is those people who do uh, past life regressions, I've read that uh, the, the, the percentages... Are pretty much they pretty much match, you know, what has been true historically. That for the most part, you go to do a regression, and you were a farmer, or you know, you were a hired laborer here, or you ran a shop there, or you know, you were a housewife, or you know, a healer, or whatever it is. All the basic things, you know, you lived in the time of so and so, the Duke of Wellington, or somebody, but um, you were somebody that that uh, you know. Uh, that uh, shines in shoes or whatever, you know, you never know. Yeah, yeah. Here's another one quickly, talking ghosts. Obviously, uh, the ghost of Abraham Lincoln has been seen in many places around around America. He's obviously very famous at the White House. He's, he's, his, his train is seen. Are there any reports of Charles Lindbergh's ghost? No, no, I haven't heard of that. I had an interesting experience myself. Uh, I went to... Uh, to uh, Springfield where Lincoln had lived. And yeah. I just sort of went on a sort of pilgrimage there. I uh, went to Lincoln's places, the famous places. It felt a wonderful experience. As a yogi, I would just sort of stand and meditate. You couldn't really sit down in lotus posture in the middle of the tour. But, you know, I, I would, uh, in, 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 for instance, his law office, I felt this great light there and this beautiful experience of his presence there. And also in New Salem where uh, he had lived as a young man, uh, just part of the legend of Lincoln, just amazing, um, and just had a wonderful experience. And then the next day I flew to Minnesota and drove up to uh, north in the state to Little Falls where Lindbergh had lived as a young boy. And, mm-hmm. and now as a yogi, I've gone to many different places where 
uh, great souls that lived, and there'd be inspiration in each place, but it'd be different in each place, you know, because mm-hmm. depending on who it was, whether it was Francis of Assisi or, you know, you go to Glastonbury and experience something, there, there'd be inspiration, but it'd be different in each place. But here I felt the same energy and vibration when I stepped out uh, on the land of where Charles Lindbergh had grown up, as I'd felt the day before in Abraham Lincoln's uh, sites in Illinois. It was really quite extraordinary. But you were asking about Abraham Lincoln's ghost. I found that to very, be very interesting. And a question came into my mind, because people saw these ghosts when Charles Lindbergh was alive. How, how could that yes. be? You know, if he yes, was a ghost, point. how could he be Lindbergh at the same time? But what I realized is that, again, looking at the past life as a Himalayan yogi, this was an advanced soul, spiritual soul. And sometimes spiritual souls will leave a little remnant of themselves in places for other people to tune into, especially in a place where, you know, something important happened in that lifetime. And for Lincoln, this was true in the White House, just people have seen his spirit and so on and so forth. So it wouldn't be necessary for them not to be reincarnated because they weren't stuck there. They had just sort of uh, left a little piece of themselves there for people who could tune into who were able to. So this is why um, Mary Queen of Scots, for instance, a ghost, excuse me, <coughs> a ghost is seen in many places, many castles uh, where she was imprisoned in England, but, but her ghost is not seen where she was executed because she's left a little bit of her energies behind in various places that she's been. Yes, yes, uh, that very well could be true. From what I know of her, she was a very refined individual, and so yes. she could have been a, a spiritually advanced soul. I haven't really done an in-depth study, but that... Yeah, very energetic. Uh, yeah. Again, famous, famous people seem to have uh, extra charisma, energy, and when we meet them, we often say, they left a real impression on me, sure. and yeah. I wonder if they do that on the building. Yes, and they get in the habit of, of being that for people. You know, just people will draw on them when they see them, and, and on some subconscious level... They get in the habit of doing that, and so some part of their their being, their psyche, could remain in a location. You know, uh, people even centuries down the road could tune into it. Oh, that's really well, Richard. I, I hate to tell you this, but we've got to wrap it up. <laughs> oh, this time just flew by. Yeah, well, we'll, have to, we'll, we'll have to come back in another lifetime and finish this. There you go. <laughs> uh, why don't you give give out your website one more time, please? Yes, it's uh, LincolnReincarnation.com, uh, and you can see uh, uh, web pages on my book there, and uh, there's also special offers uh, to purchase from that site, but there's also more information about reincarnation uh, LincolnReincarnation.com. Richard, thank you so much. We've been talking to Richard Salver, who's written the book uh, Soul Journey, as, as well as, oh, God, why can't, I can't remember, uh, the Reincarnated Lincoln. <laughs> The reincarnation of Abraham Lincoln. That's there you in, go. In Richard, thank everywhere. you so much. Thank you, Ron. It's been a real pleasure. pleasure talking to you. Yes, same here. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye. Well, that was pretty cool. That was absolutely fascinating. I actually have to mention a couple things. I, I do have a paranormal study group tonight, uh, which is at the Circles of Wisdom in uh, Andover. And, uh, you know, it's uh, at 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. That's in the end over. If you want to uh, sign up, you can go to the website of circlesofwisdom.com or you can call eight seven uh, no, um, 978-747-8010. And also tomorrow night we will be broadcasting live from Barnes & Nobles in Peabody. 
So come on down. We've got uh, some prizes to give out. We're going to be doing some neat stuff. Uh, We have a person who uh, knows a lot about the doll Robert, which which is that haunted doll in in Key West, Florida. So that will be uh, the show tomorrow night. That's at 7 o'clock at the Barnes & Noble in Peabody. So anyways, Richard, I, I, I did cut you off a little bit before, but you were talking a little bit uh, about the uh, toilet stuff, which was um, so fascinating. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I, think, <laughs> I think there's something in it, my friend. I really do. I, I, you know, <laughs> I think just... we're losing it. If we think the toilets are fascinating, I don't know. Well, well, well then again, I, I wait, think, a wait a minute. Aren't the ghost hunters plumbers? So I guess that kind of fits. I mean, even Elvis died in the toilet, don't forget. Oh, God, please don't remind me. That's a sight I do not want to see. <laughs> Absolutely right, but still, never mind. I'm uh, working on, on going out on location, hopefully, next week with me Skype into a ha- possibly a haunted pub, and I'll let you know more about it in the week. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got, I've got some guys that have got a sort of a, almost a portable studio that I'll be able to go out into... Oh, even outside into standing stones and places like that and, and be able to beam it through to you via Skype. So uh, um, watch this space, guys. Well, that will be interesting, standing stones. I mean, that always fascinates me. Uh, yeah. I know that we, we are still trying to get over there, and, and I've been talking to Nori, and uh, she's planning. Uh, hopefully she'll do some events for us. So, uh uh, but we're, uh, we're looking at coming over there. I'm not sure if it'll be this year or be early next year, but I'm dying to see you again, Richard. Look forward to it, my friend. I really do. We're missing you both. And uh, what's coming up this weekend for you? Anything special? Uh, this weekend, uh, very little at all, because I'm actually, as I think I told you, I'm putting up a, for a councillor uh, for the city of Derby. Oh, uh, that's the elections, right. Yeah, the elections are on May the 6th. Um, and I'm hoping to... Uh, to get elected, because uh, I want to be the mayor of Derby one day. So I will have to address you as your lordship mayor or something no, like that? No, 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 Mr. Mayor. <laughs> oh, Mr. Mayor. Mr. Mayor, yeah, but it's a long way yet. You know, I've got to get elected first, and uh, nobody knows what's going to happen. But, uh, yeah, something because I'm something I'm very close to my heart, you know, the, my city, and, and so I thought I need to get a little bit more involved. Right. I mean, that's another thing people don't know about. But when you came over here last year, you reached out to uh, several of the mayors in some of the local cities uh, because yeah. there was a connection between uh, uh, the UK and the US here. I thought that was uh, you I know, am, very yeah. Lowell, commendable of you. Lowell, Massachusetts, uh, Derby, Connecticut, uh, Derby Line near Franconia. Um, I, I visited for, and Boston, of course, all founded by people from Derby in England. Well, Richard, I guess it's time to wrap it up. Anything else you want to end up? I think, to be quite honest with you, that's about it because my voice is just about running out. Because, uh, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I'm losing my voice, basically. So, uh, now, I uh, wonder if, before we go, one quick thought for, to, for everybody to stick with. I wonder if this volcano increases or decreases paranormal activity. Think about it. I... I, well, my phone, well, I can't get through to you via, via my telephone line. So there tonight. you go. So it's time to wrap it up. So good night. Talk God to you very soon. Bye. From goalies to ghosties, long-legged beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us 